All right, good morning. Good to see you this morning. My name is Josh Hayes. I'm the college pastor here at Alliance, and I just want to give you a fair warning. Before we begin, I uh, had an, I think, extra dose of coffee this morning and very little food. So I don't know if you're going to, we're going to finish this thing in half the time, (laughs) or if it's going to take twice as long because I have twice as much information, or if you're going to get twice as much information in half the time. I don't know what's going to happen. But I am excited to be with you this morning, excited to bring God's word. Uh, We're going to be doing part two of our uh, message that we began last week. We did words, part one, talking about words that hurt. And I had someone coming to me this morning, come to me and say, uh, man, I I, I need some words that help. Like, you know, um, and I'm the same way. So I'm looking forward to this next part of of, uh, our time in Proverbs together. I'm sure we've all heard the saying before, a picture is worth a thousand words. You've heard it. Good. A picture is worth a thousand words. Well, in a lot of ways, that sums up uh, the book of Proverbs. Uh, it, it really captures it perfectly because the book of Proverbs is loaded with vivid images, vivid pictures that help to drive the point home. And they really stick with us. They stay with us. And sometimes you might forget the wording of the proverb, but you don't forget the image. You don't forget the picture because it comes to mind in that moment. I wanted to share a few of these with you uh, because I'm a, I'm a very like uh, vivid, you know, thinking pictures and things like that, analogies. And so I love this <clears throat> from the book of Proverbs. Here's a few of my favorites. The first one says, gracious words <coughs> are like honey for the soul. I don't even like honey much, but I like that one. Gracious words are like honey for the soul. Envy, it says, is such a destructive emotion that it will cause your bones to rot, to soften up and just rot. Strong drink is like a poisonous serpent that bites and stings. A beautiful woman with no discretion is like a gold ring, like an ornamental, beautiful, valuable gold ring in a pig's filthy snout. The sluggard, the person who is lazy, the sluggard is, this is my translation, the sluggard is so lazy that he buries his hand in the cookie jar and he won't even bother to bring it back to his mouth to feed himself because he's so lazy. That's the image at least. And then this one's my favorite one. Maybe this is just the old youth pastor coming out, a little shock value, but it's in the scripture, so I'm giving it to you. A foolish person who keeps repeating his mistakes is like a dog that keeps going back to lick up its vomit. That's gross. But you won't forget that, will you? And when you see someone continue to do the same thing over and over and over, that image, that picture that the Bible gives to you sticks in your mind and you think about a dog going back to do this very gross thing, that is a fool who continues to repeat his folly. It's a memorable image. Well, as we look at the the words that help from the Proverbs, there's one for me that really stood out this past week as I was studying and it comes from uh, Proverbs chapter 15 and verse four. You'll see it behind me on the screen. It reads like this. A gentle, other translations in parentheses at the bottom may say healing. A gentle or healing tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A gentle tongue, a healing tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. It's that first part that really interested me as I was studying this past week. Think of where you've heard of a tree of life before. Where have you heard of a tree of life? Genesis. 
Several commentators say this tree of life image goes all the way back to the beginning of our book, the beginning of the Bible in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2 and verse 9, listen, before our fall into sin. In Genesis 2, 9, there are two trees and where did God put them? The center of the garden. All of life revolves around these two trees. There are two trees planted by God in the center of this garden. Both are central to this life of blessing, this life of shalom. When we say shalom, it's the Hebrew word for peace. It doesn't mean just the absence of bad. It means the fullness of all that is good, right? So having like bad coffee in your cup this morning, that's a bad thing. If you empty it out, that's not shalom. But if you fill it up with really good coffee or your favorite creamer or however you ruin your coffee, that's shalom, That's peace in your cup. And so Adam and Eve were forbidden to eat from one tree, the knowledge of good and evil, but there is no prohibition from eating from this tree of life as far as I can tell. In fact, one commentator even suggests that eating from this tree of life would result in continued life. So why choose this image for the tongue? Like you've got to wrestle with Proverbs sometimes, right? They don't just jump out of the box and scare you and oh, that's what it means. Sometimes you got to pin that thing to the mat, you know? And sometimes it pins you to the mat, doesn't it? So why choose this image for the tongue? Why compare it to a tree of life in the garden before the fall? I can't help but wonder if this image was chosen to point us back to the original purpose, the original design for how we use our tongues for how we speak for how we use our words before sin came in and ravaged and scarred God's beautiful perfect world full of shalom think about this God created a man and a woman and he put them in a garden where he could commune with them and they could commune with one another intimately in fellowship and a central component to this communing a central component to this relationship before the fall was using their tongues for loving and life-giving speech. In other words, here's what I'm saying to you. There was a time when your native language, as a human, your native language was only helping words and never hurting words. Our tongues were used for good and not evil. They were fountains of life. You'll see that in a little bit. They were trees of life designed to nourish and designed to bless, to encourage and to promote peace and welfare and good and shalom. But after Genesis 3, almost as if we have forgotten our native tongue, is it not? And so let me tell you what the book of Proverbs does for us. Proverbs takes us back into the classroom to relearn how to speak a language that we once fluently enjoyed but we have forgotten. Last week we talked about words that hurt. This week we're gonna talk about words that help. I've chosen that word help intentionally. This week we've got five subcategories. Last week we had how many? Six, but remember I've had extra coffee. So the first category is this. Words that help are nourishing words. Proverbs 10, 11a, the first part of the couplet says this. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. 1021a. The lips of the righteous feed many. 15.4a, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. This word nourish is important because the word nourish has the idea of a shepherd. The shepherd motif is all throughout the scripture. There's good shepherds and there's bad shepherds, but who is pictured as the shepherd in Psalm 23? God. 
And God nourishes his sheep. He feeds his sheep. He cares for his sheep. He looks out for the good and the benefit of his sheep. It says he leads them to green pastures, lush pastures. He leads them beside quiet waters because they won't drink if the waters are turbulent. So he finds the place where they can be best nourished. He restores our souls. All that the shepherd does in Psalm 23 is said to be for our good, for the good of the sheep. Not for himself. That's the job of a shepherd is to do what is good for his flock, to look out for the welfare of his flock, to nourish them. So if you notice, all of the Proverbs that speak of nourishing words are not aimed at taking care of us. All of the Proverbs that speak of nourishing words are aimed at refreshing and feeding and caring for who? Others, not ourselves. Nourishing words help because they seek the good and the benefit of others. Think about how the world tells you to talk. Think about how your world has trained you to talk. You speak, you learn to speak. This this sinful slang that you have learned is not your native tongue. And this sinful slang that you speak so easily, you open your mouth and it just falls out and you're like, come, come back. These words that we speak are how the world trained us to speak. But look throughout the New Testament. You see this constant refrain of God calling his church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, not to talk like the world, to be called out of the world in very many ways. And one of these ways is how we speak. He calls the church to speak words of life, words of nourishment to each other. Listen to what he says. Welcome one another. Bless one another. Pray for one another. Confess to one another. Speak truth to one another. Encourage one another. In other words, it's as if God is saying in the New Testament to his church, to the ecclesia, who is you, to be life-giving fountains to one another with your words for the building up of the other person. When I was growing up, one of my favorite books, I should have put a picture on the screen. I, gosh, I forgot that. A little green book by Shel Silverstein called The Giving Tree. Anybody read The Giving Tree? love the giving tree. There's this tree. I always spoil things when I tell stories for you. Sorry. There's this tree that this little boy discovers. And in every single phase of his life, this tree gives to this boy, gives him shade, gives him a place to make a rope swing, gives him uh, even a place to, to chop the tree down and I think build a house. And at the end, this old man comes back and sits down on the stump of this tree, this giving tree. And every time I get to that last part of the book, like I slow down and take a deep breath because I almost want to choke up and and tear up just a little bit. Because this tree, this tree of life, so to speak, has given this boy everything. Everything he needed for life, all throughout every phase of life, it blessed this little boy. And he says, I don't have anything to give you left, but you can sit here and rest your bones a while. He loved the boy and wanted what was best for him. It became a literal tree of life in that book. And your words, through the help of the Holy Spirit, because of the gospel, your words can be trees of life to people around you. Does a tree eat its own fruit? Absolutely not. What does it do? It drops fruit for the good of others around it. Words that help are nourishing words. Second category are honest words. Words that help are honest words. 14.5 says, a faithful witness does not lie. 1425, a truthful witness saves lives. And 2426 says, whoever gives an honest answer kisses the lips. I was talking to a friend of mine who came to town. We grew up together and he's planting a church down in Mebane with our, one of our best friends that was in the youth group together. Those two 
uh, launched out in this church planting venture. And he said to me Thursday night, you know, man, the entire reason that I decided to launch out into this scary adventure with Jason is because he speaks the truth. This was unprompted. I didn't even tell him what I was preaching on. I thought, man, he just gave me a great illustration. He launched out into this adventure because his friend Jason is a faithful witness. When he speaks, his word is gold. When he speaks, he shoots straight. In fact, the word honest in the Hebrew is a geometric term. I did terrible in geometry, so I'm not gonna share my grade, but I do know what a straight line is. And the word in Hebrew for honest means straight ahead. An honest and reliable witness takes the straightest path to the truth. They don't swerve. They don't deviate. They don't deal in distorted answers or shady angles. Geometrically speaking, an honest and reliable witness speaks in straight lines. That's a powerful image, isn't it? Go look at the number of lies and half-truths and distorted answers that come after Genesis 3. What happened? People forgot how to speak their native tongue. This sinful slang came in and we became very proficient in speaking words that are destructive and divisive and hurtful. And they just come out without us even thinking about it because something's wrong in here. Remember, where's be the condition of our heart? 14, 5 and 25 both envision a, a witness in a court of law. Bruce Waltke says, when tested, a reliable witness is not moved by entreaties, bribes, or promises, nor by threats to swerve from the truth. Do you have anybody in your life like that? Do you have someone in your life that you know when you ask them for an honest answer, it's going to come out of a heart of love and they're going to speak in a straight line right to the issue? Verse 25 says that kind of person can save lives. 2426 is another powerful image. It says an honest answer is like one who kisses the lips. Now, I don't know if you had any bad experiences at family reunions with aunts that you didn't want to kiss you. Maybe that's not a good thing. This is designed to be a good thing. Let me explain why. A kiss in the biblical culture was a picture of devotion and loyalty between two people. Think about this. If you don't have honesty, are you going to have devotion or loyalty? Absolutely not. If you don't have devotion and you don't have loyalty, will you have any kissing? No. Like, well, that's simple logic. That's the Proverbs. You wrestle with them and you see how the pieces of the puzzle fit together and they give us this wisdom from God. Honest words build up devotion. They build up loyalty in relationships. But when you speak lies like the enemy, what happens? Things fall apart. The Bible teaches us that our God is a God of truth. Amen, church? His word is a word of truth. Therefore, if you belong to him and you have been cleansed by his blood, then your words and your character ought to be like his. I'm laying an imperative in front of you. It's a gospel imperative. You don't do it to earn his favor. You do it because the king has given you his favor. He has extended his scepter to you and said, you are welcome into my court as my child anytime you want because of my son, Jesus. That's a gospel imperative. Our words ought to be faithful, reliable, and honest. 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides or makes his home in Christ ought to walk. That's the manner of life in the same way in which he walked. We ought to be people that speak in straight lines like Jesus. Third, words that help are also carefully chosen. They're carefully chosen. 1523 says this, to make an apt answer is a joy to a man. 
and a word in season, how good it is. Read, read the Proverbs with life. 25.11 says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. 25.15, we touched on last week, with patience, a ruler may be persuaded. See, sometimes it's not what you say that gets you in trouble, is it? It's how you say it and when you say it that gets you in trouble. I think of Esther. I just finished reading Esther a few weeks ago in my Bible reading plan. I think of Esther, the Jewish woman who wound up in the favor of the Persian king. And when she found out that Haman was plotting to exterminate her people, listen to what she did. She waited three days. Then she called for a fast among her people and she prepared a feast on that third day so that she would have an opportunity to speak to the king at the right time. Then when she got a chance to speak to the king at the right time, after everyone had eaten, everybody's belly's full, you know, we listen better when our stomachs are, are not growling at us. She asked the king and Haman to come to another feast on the next day. She is, she is choosing her, her, her time, choosing wisely. Esther 5, 9 tells us, this is my translation again, that Haman left out fat and happy. He goes home and tells his family, hey, you're not gonna believe this. I get to go to another feast. I get to go back tomorrow and hang out with the king and hang out with the queen. It's gonna be great. And Esther has carefully chosen her time. The next day they get together. Everything's ready. And Esther reveals Haman's evil plan to exterminate her people, the Jews. And Haman winds up on the gallows that he had made for Mordecai, who was Esther's Jewish uncle. See, carefully chosen words are helpful words. 1523 says this, calls it a word in what? Season, a word in season. I, I, I love to hunt. In about a month where my family lives, hunting season is gonna be coming in and I'll be going down for some weekends to spend the time with my dad and one of my sons is uh, getting into this and we're excited. You know, but if I go out right now and I kill the biggest buck that North Carolina has ever seen, my name is not going in the record books. My name is going in the game warden's book, right? Because I take that animal out of what? Season, out of season. I, my name is going on the judge's docket. It's not going in the record books. But if I wait till it is in season to take that buck, then my name goes in the record books and my face goes all over magazine covers. Timing is everything. This is so true to how we choose our words, is it not? 25, 11, and 12 says this. Speaking up at the right time is like a beautiful decorative ointment, ornament. You say, what, what, what is an apple of gold? It's just a, a, jeweler's, uh, a jeweler's work, craftsmanship, um, set in, the, in a silver setting. It's like a beautiful family heirloom. What does that do? It adds value. It adds beauty to the room. So even words of correction, when you have to speak those, you choose them at the right time and we choose our words carefully can add to a situation. If you're taking notes this morning, I wanna give you a helpful formula that I ran across this past week. Danny Aiken and his son, Jonathan Aiken, offer this helpful formula in choosing our words carefully so they help. He says this, when it is the right word from the right person in the right way at the right time to the right person, they say that's how we can have loving confrontation. Wisdom teaches us there's a right way and a right time to speak up. The fourth category I wanna spend a little bit of time with this morning are words that rebuke. Words that rebuke. 25.12 says this, 
like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. It takes a wise reprover and it takes a listening ear. 28, 23, whoever rebukes a man will afterward, not immediately, but afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. This one's tricky, is it not? Rebuke? dare say nobody woke up this morning and just thought, first thought out of the bed, man, I hope somebody rebukes me today. (laughs) Like that's really what I need that will bless my soul. You know, your spouse rolls over and looks at you first thing and just rebukes you for the meal you fixed yesterday. Nobody thinks that way. We don't like to be called out. And let me just say, this is not in my notes. Sometimes believers can get the idea that God has called them to be in some kind of Old Testament prophet and go around just calling everybody out. There's a right way and a right time and you have to be the right person in order to do this in a biblical way. 2512 suggests there's even an art to biblical rebuke. The person who finally crafts his words, it says is like a jeweler who crafts these perfect apples of gold and puts them into a silver setting. It's a beautiful ornament. 28.23 talks about the long-term value of gracious rebuke. It may feel bad right now, but there's long-term value in it. I love the example of Apollos in the book of Acts. Apollos was a gifted, this brother was a gifted communicator of truth. But it says there were some things about, about God, about the way of God that he didn't quite have exactly right. And so he's up preaching and he's just preaching powerfully to this great effect. And Aquila and Priscilla... I learned in VBS is technically Aquila and Priscilla, but it's either say the other way. Aquila and Priscilla pull him aside, you know, and they start throwing cabbages and rotten eggs at this guy while he's preaching, right? No. They go on Facebook and they start saying all kinds of things. Just take cheap shots at Apollos while he's preaching, right? Absolutely not. They pull Apollos aside and the scripture very clearly says they explain to him a better way. Right people, right time, right word to the right person. Not about the right person, to the right person. And you know what verse 27 says in that chapter? He was a great help to the believers afterward. Do you know what happened there? God used Aquila and and Priscilla to, to call this brother aside. God had gifted him to be a communicator of truth, but they called him to the side and they said, let us explain to you a better way. And they helped him. They gave him a crash course in some of his seminary needs, right? And the gospel goes forward in power because they were the right people with the right word at the right way in the right time. Biblically speaking, let me ask you a question. What's the purpose of a rebuke? Is the purpose of a rebuke, biblically speaking, to embarrass the other person? Is it somebody who you feel like is competing with you so you catch them slipping a little bit and you're gonna go get them? Is the purpose of a biblical rebuke to to trash somebody else's name? Is the purpose of a biblical rebuke to raise yourself up so that you may look like a more valuable person in the family or the company or the entity or whatever? Absolutely not. Matthew 18, Jesus talks about biblical rebuke. He says, go to your brother in private. Go to him in quiet. One-on-one, have this conversation with your brother who has sinned. May not even be sin against you. In fact, I don't think the Greek even includes against you. 
And when you see your brother who is wandering away into sin, have this conversation with him in private. Do you know why large-scale church discipline situations go so badly off track? Because we don't do what Jesus said in Matthew 15 and Matthew 16. We fail to go to our brother and sister and be a wise reprover and perhaps they, they fail to be a listening ear or perhaps somebody comes to us and they reprove us and we don't want to hear it and we stiff arm them and push them away. The purpose, Jesus says, is to gain your brother, to restore your brother. Let me ask you a question. How did the gospel come to you? In order for you to be saved, technically, the gospel had to come as a word of rebuke in your life, did it not? The blood of Jesus cannot defend you until the gospel has offended you. So if the gospel has not offended you and you not realize, hey, that's my sinful, that, that's my pet sin, that's my flesh, Jesus says, hold up, I have a word to say to you. The gospel offends us before it will defend us. And we are restored to a right relationship with our heavenly father. The purpose of a biblical rebuke is to be helpful to aim to restore. Number five, words that help are words that encourage. 1225 says this, anxiety in a, in a man's heart weighs him down. It weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. The Hebrew here literally means to bow down like a prisoner in front of his captor. You ever wrestled with anxiety before? Never struggled with anxious thoughts, worry, fear, things that just cause you to feel like everybody else may think you're standing up straight, but inwardly you are bowed down before your captor. And what is your captor's name? Anxiety, fear, worry, the enemy. If you have wrestled with this in your life, you know it can be crippling. Charles Spurgeon struggled mightily with depression throughout his ministry, he said this, I would go to the deeps a hundred times to cheer a downcast spirit. He said, it is good for me to have been afflicted that I might know how to speak a word in season to one who is weary. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 that God comforts us. That word comfort in the old English is calm, forte, with strength. God comforts us. He comes to us with strength in the person of Jesus Christ so that we have something to offer to others who are afflicted. We can give them comfort. We can come along and encourage them. There's a little boy I read about. He and his dad were walking along the beach together and they were just having a good father-son conversation and they came upon hundreds of starfish that had washed up on the beach hundreds of these starfish. And so immediately this father and son talk about what are we going to do? And they began picking these starfish up and tossing them back into the water, picking them up one at a time and throwing them back into the waves to rescue them from dying and drying out. And eventually the little boy, after bending over and picking up and bending over and picking up and tossing, he looks at his dad and he says, Daddy, there's just too many of them. There's no point in this. It's not worthwhile. It doesn't matter. And the daddy looked back at his son and he said, but it matters to the ones you picked up. You may look around a room like this and say, how can God ever use me in a church this size? If God uses you to encourage one person today and one person tomorrow and one person, one at a time. Think about if a thousand people that are gonna come to this campus today spoke one word of encouragement tomorrow. That's a thousand words that help. 
That's incredible. And you can do it one at a time. You see, you see folks every day. You see folks every day who have washed up on the beach in life, don't you? They've dried up. They're drying out. You live with them. You're married to them. You work with them. You work out with them if you like to do that sort of thing. You order your sandwich and your Coke from them at lunch. Have you ever stopped and asked a server? I think is the correct term. Have you ever stopped and asked a server? Can I pray for you today? Almost every time. They will look at you with this look of shock because they come expecting to get one thing from you in order and what did you give them? An offer. Can I pray for you today? Your words can be like precious gifts that make their hearts glad. A number of years ago, the students in our college ministry began giving what they call word gifts. At the year-end picnic, we have our seniors come up. They're recognized. They share their plans of where they're heading when they graduate. And then one of their friends comes up and gives them a word gift. I want to anonymously share two of these with you. And I've shortened them for a little bit for time, but I could not choose between either one. I want to share these with you this morning. This is going on in your college ministry in your church right now. Sweet friend. Two girls, you can tell it's not two guys. (laughs) Just occurred to me. Sweet friend, you have been one of the biggest blessings of my time at App, and I can honestly say I'm a better friend, sister, and daughter because of you. From the beginning of our friendship, you have affirmed qualities that either I didn't see in myself or I thought no one noticed. You have made me feel seen and loved. You affirmed the growth in me that most people would not think was a big deal because you understood me in a way that few people do. You're a safe place for people. You make them feel heard. After the most difficult conversation of my life to date, I drove literally sobbing to your house. And in one of my most vulnerable moments, I knew I could trust you with my tears. That afternoon, a burden I had carried for a long time reached a breaking point. And that day, you shouldered it with me. She's saying this to her friend in front of 100 other students. You affirmed that what I was going through was hard and you were proud of me. You listened to me while I cried and you shared a real mess of a situation. And you spoke truth in love. You prayed over me in the entire situation. That day especially has made me a better sister, a better friend, and a better daughter. You and your friendship have been a literal gift from the Lord, and I am immensely grateful for you. So from the very bottom of my heart, thank you. I love you. Isn't that powerful? That's a gift. Those are words that help. The second one says this, dear friend, You've had a profound impact on my college experience and who I am today. You have modeled for me and so many others what it looks like to love others, to welcome, to be vulnerable, to have empathy for everyone, even those you've never met. I think your ability to empathize with others is a unique God-given ability. You listen closely, you acknowledge the hardship, you affirm the feelings, you speak the truth in love, and you encourage. Well, now I want to encourage you. And thank you for being there for me. You are clearly God's handiwork. And I can't wait to see the good works that he has destined for you to do. 
Do you know what that did for the entire group of us sitting under that shelter at Valley Crucis? We, we all just sat up a little bit straighter. Proverbs 18, 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Both exist in the power of the tongue. And our native language back in the garden was once words of life, but death came in and stained our speech. And I wanna remind you, the sinful slang that you speak when you're walking in the flesh, that sinful slang is not how God made you to speak. So here's what I wanna say to you this morning. Let's say this morning or last night or this past week, you have been cold. You have been hard with your words. You have been demanding. Maybe you've been cutting or you've been sarcastic or you've been reckless like, like we talked about, just wielding that sword everywhere in your speech this past week. Listen to me clearly. You may say, here's how I've been talking. It's hypocritical for me to change. The Bible doesn't call it hypocritical. The Bible calls that obedience. It's not hypocritical to repent. It's biblical to repent. It's hypocritical to say that you're walking with Jesus and to know that the Holy Spirit is saying, stop using your words to hurt and you keep on doing it. That's hypocritical. That's wearing a mask. The Bible calls us to obedience. So I wanna give you something practical you can do and then we're gonna come together to the Lord's Supper table. In the seat back in front of you, unless you're on this front row right here or the front row in the back section, in the seat back in front of you should be two cards. Please only take one. One per person, not one per family, one per person. There should be two cards and you will see on the top left of one of those cards, it says word gift. Here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to take one of those cards, leave the other one for the second service. I want you to take one of those cards, not right now. I want you to stick it in your Bible at Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And I want you to pray and ask God Lord, show me, Spirit of the living God, show me, move in me, speak to me. Who needs a word gift this week? Can I say something to you? It doesn't have to be a believer. You can be a powerful witness for Christ by speaking a gift with your words to an unbeliever, encouraging them, affirming the image of God that's in them that's just like it's in you. So here's your homework, Okay because our fall semester is about to kick off. Your homework is to take that word gift sheet, take it home, and in the next day or two, prayerfully ask God, who do you want me to give this word gift to? And you can do it in one of two ways. Let's say you're terrible with words speaking, write it down and mail it to them. We live in a world of texts and emails and all kinds of technology. And when you go to the box and you open that thing and you think you're gonna get a bill, but you get a blessing, it's good, ain't it? It's good. Just send it in the snail mail and surprise them. And if you're okay speaking, you know what I'd encourage you to do? Speak these words over someone. Speak words that help. Speak words of life and let God use you as a tree of life in someone else's life this week. You can speak words that help because the word who heals came and spoke words of life over you, amen?